Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Well, good morning and welcome to Crosspoint. I'm the youth pastor. <laughs> I, don't know. I don't, I mean, you don't recover from that. So, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in Boston with a group of students, and we were um, helping serve alongside a young church plant in Boston. One of the things that we did while we were there is we did spiritual surveys. And so, we went out on these campuses in Boston, these college campuses, and we essentially just walked up to people and said, hey, would you be interested in taking a spiritual survey? Now, I think maybe in my ignorance, I assumed that everyone in Boston on a major university was an atheist or agnostic. That was not, in fact, what I discovered personally as I did five or six of these surveys. We went through things like, do you believe that there is a God? And, and surprisingly, most people were willing to say, yeah, I mean, I, I believe that there is a higher power, there is some sort of God. Obviously, that wasn't the case for everyone. But people were willing to admit that. People were willing to admit, yeah, I'm a, I, I am a non-denominational Christian. I, I, I gather in some sort of Christian gathering. That is my background. That's how I grew up. And to me, that was, that was really surprising. Many of them believed in eternity. They wanted to, to believe that there was a heaven and that there was a hell. That was also extremely surprising to me, considering they said they believed in a place called hell. They also believe that mankind has a problem, that there is some sort of issue with us, that we are broken as humans, as, as humanity there is an issue that we are facing, though many of them did not have a particular answer to give as to what that was. And then without fail, every single person said, I would in fact like to have a personal relationship with God. And those things were, were, were pretty surprising to me, but there, there was one question on the survey that I think revealed everything about these people, and that was the question, who is Jesus? Again, quite surprising. I, I, I heard answers of he's the son of God, he's a prophet, he is a good man, and all of these things were true in and of themselves. Those, those things are certainly true of Jesus. But there, there was one answer that was exactly the same for every person that I talked to. And the answer was not really. When I asked the question, okay, so you believe in Jesus, but does it really matter who he is? And without fail, for me, the answer was no, not really. To me, this reveals the problem of mankind at its basis, and that's that we believe that we can find answers, we can find truth, we can find satisfaction in this life on our own. That we can find fulfillment and satisfaction in this life on our own with no help outside of ourselves. Our text this morning is a, is a short text in John chapter 7. It's verses 37 through 39. And to me, it is one of the most beautiful passages of Scripture that I've encountered. Likely that is because I'm preaching it this morning, but it is magnificent. 
these two sentences that Jesus utters, and then the third sentence that John gives us as a clarification, they are simply beautiful. Because in just a short breath, Jesus reveals everything that we need to know to be satisfied. Look with me at John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let us pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the kindness and the grace in bringing us together in this room to consider our Lord Jesus Christ. It is not every day that everyone gets to consider Jesus, and it certainly is the case that they do not consider him rightly. I pray this morning that we would see Christ clearly, that we as believers would behold in glory in our Lord Jesus, that we would lift him up and magnify him and exalt his name this morning before all of those who are here with us, before the, the community of Columbus and and before all of the hosts of heaven, may Christ be our plea this morning. May our worship, may the very utterances of our mouth and the thoughts in our mind be Christ alone. Father, I pray if there are unbelievers here, and I, I know there are, I pray that you would convict them this morning, that you would turn them from themselves, that they would see the satisfaction that is found in Christ alone and the glory therein. Father, I pray that you would remove me. If you, if you could make me invisible this morning, that we might see you clearly in your word and nothing else, that we might behold you, that we might lift you up, and that we might turn our eyes from me, from ourselves, and heavenward. Father, fill us with the Spirit that we might do this. Sanctify us, grow us in holiness. We beg of you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we are landing here in John chapter 7, and I want to kind of fill in the context of what's happening. Israel is celebrating one of their seven major festivals, one of their seven major feasts. This one happens to be the Feast of Booths. And what Israel is doing right now in this moment is they have for seven days been thanking the Lord and celebrating the fact that God was with the people of Israel in the wilderness after he brought them up out of Egypt. That in the midst of, of, of the dangers they were facing, in, in the midst of the need that they were facing, in the midst of the anxiety they were facing, God himself was there with his people taking care of them. He was with them in the wilderness when they had no place to stay, no homes to live in, and they are celebrating the fact that God was there and gracious and good to his people. And so what they do is they create these, these three-sided huts, and they leave the top kind, kind of open so at night when they're sleeping in these huts, for seven days they live in these, these tents. 
And at night, they can see all of the beauty of God's creation and the stars, and they're reminded of the majesty of God. This is right after Israel has just taken in all of the crops for the year, and they are celebrating how good God has been to them. And everyone is full of joy. Everyone is celebrating. Everyone is excited to see what God will do in this coming year. And yet there is a major problem. The people have become satisfied, as we will see, and as you can read through John chapter 7, we won't look at all of it, and as you can see in all of the Gospels, the people of Israel have become satisfied with their religion. The people of Israel have become satisfied with their traditions, and they've become satisfied with merely showing up to receive the good things that God has promised to give them. And so we find them here celebrating at, at, the, at the height, the climax of joy on this great last final day of this festival. And Jesus comes onto the scene. And in the midst of this great day, everything changes. What's happening at this very moment on this last day is they've just made a procession from the, 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 the well of Siloam. The, the priests have gone, they've taken these pitchers, they've scooped up water, they have water in one pitcher, wine in the other pitcher, and they are marching their way back to the altar in Jerusalem. And everyone is behind them chanting and cheering and they're singing psalms and praises to their God and the priests finally make their way up to the altar. They ascend the ramp, and right at the moment that everything is about to be wonderful, they're about to pour the water and the wine onto the altar, you have this man, Jesus, that stands up and cries out and changes everything. Everything changes in this moment. And in two short verses, Jesus reveals everything. And everyone is standing around. Probably their mouths are open. The priests are livid. They are white hot with anger. And everyone is looking to this man and thinking, who is Jesus? Who is this man? And the answers are many. He's a prophet. He's a good man. He's the Son of God. But what Jesus says reveals everything. And so I want to look at four truths this morning. I want to answer the question this morning very simply Who is Jesus? Who is this man who can stand up and cry out? So I have four things this morning. Number one, Jesus is the quencher of thirst. So here, Jesus stands up right in the midst of this moment where he's, they're, they're pouring out the water. They're expecting a, this festival essentially will bring all of the rain they need for this coming year for their crops to yield. 
They are, they are thinking God is good to us because we are good to him. We will have plenty of water for this year's harvest. This is the moment. And this man stands up and says, in fact, all you who are thirsty. The reality is in, in, in the mind of an Israelite, they're thinking we, we aren't thirsty at all. We're about to take care of that. In fact, we will have all that we need in just a moment. And Jesus stands up and says, you who are thirsty. What he is doing, what Jesus is doing in this moment is he is lovingly casting doubt on their ability to truly be satisfied with what they are doing in this moment. He is wanting them to, to doubt whether or not this festival will bring what they truly desire. The reality is, is all of the gospel of John is pointing us to one thing, that Jesus is the Son of God who has been sent onto the earth. He is the Word made flesh to dwell amongst men, that they might see God truly, that they might behold Him physically in the face in the person of Jesus. That's what all of the gospel of John is doing. So when he, when he stands up and calls out their thirst, he is revealing something about them that they don't know about themselves. Because he is the Son of God, God himself. He is very familiar and acquainted with who man is. In, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 13, the prophet here tells us, he gives us an insight into what Jesus is thinking at this moment. Jeremiah 2, 13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. What Jesus is doing is he's wanting to save them from a life of digging wells that will never hold water. He wants to stop them right in this moment and say, listen, you are digging a hole that you are filling with water and that will soon seep out. And you will, in fact, have to dig another hole soon. In fact, in, 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 in this regard, you will do this festival next year. You will re-celebrate next year. You will have to go through all of this tradition again next year. You who are thirsty, come. What Jesus is doing is he's trying to kindle these Israelites' thirst for salvation. He wants them to, he, he wants them to hear he wants them in, in the moment of him crying out. He wants them to feel the anguish that they suffer in realizing that the world gives them no satisfaction. He wants in, in this moment to cast doubt on their ability to be satisfied. He wants them to clearly think, you know what, Jesus, you're right. This is doing nothing for me. Because I will go on from here and I will struggle throughout this year. I will go on from here and my child will get sick. I will go on from here and something will happen. And I will find myself dissatisfied with what the world has to offer. Jesus wants them at this point. In love, he wants them to question whether they are truly satisfied with this stuff whether or not coming and being religious is enough. 
He wants them to turn and long for what he's offering. He wants them to say, I am thirsty. Give me what you're talking about. He's calling all of those who will admit their thirst to come and drink and be satisfied. Jesus, in a word, is saying, listen, you need something. You are dissatisfied. You are not good. This is not in and of itself pleasing to God. If you will simply admit your need and come to me, you can come to me not in your goodness, but in your sinfulness. You can come to me just as you are. You can give up the pursuit of trying to please me through these things and half-heartedly, because you're getting something from this, let's be honest, I'm freeing you to come just as the sinner you are in your filth with your dirty rags. Turn, admit, and feel free to come. That's the love in this. That's the love that Jesus shows them in the midst of calling out the fact that they are dissatisfied. That if y'all are honest, this is doing nothing for you. But there is one who can do something. Come to me and drink. Jesus is giving them a new plea before God. Jesus is revealing to them, listen, the day will come when you will stand before your Creator, and what you will not have to tell Him is that you saw the priest pour out the water and the wine. You were there on the great day. You were participating in all of the goodness and all of the joy of Israel. God, please let me in your kingdom. Jesus is saying, listen, you are thirsty. Your plea should not be these things. Your plea should be that you were once thirsty, and yet you turned to Christ and drank. When you get to heaven, your plea for the kingdom is Jesus. He's giving them a new answer before their God. And it has nothing to do with who they are and everything to do with who Christ is. We're all familiar with the attempts to satisfy our thirst. All over the place, you are tempted to satisfy your thirst, to quench your thirst with something. The reality is, though, we all know that that thing will only quench our thirst for a moment. We are plagued with continually finding contentment in this life. Whether it be your brand new iPhone, they're going to come out with another one, and they're going to tell you about it five years before they come out with it. Whether it's clothes, whatever it is, your children, your house, your home, we continually are, are living this life of, of finding contentment and satisfaction, and it never stops. The need, the pressure, it never goes away. And here in love, Jesus is saying, listen, stop. Stop spinning your wheels. 
This will never satisfy you, but I have something that will. And not just right now. We find ourselves jumping from one promise of hope to the next. This church, for this season of life, gives me what I need. When the time comes, it no longer delivers. I will go to another church and I will get what I need. This youth group, this city, this house, this spouse. We jump from one promise of hope to the next because we are fickle. The beauty is, is Jesus is saying, listen, I know exactly who you are. I know that you are fickle. Will you turn and come to me? John Piper, he has such a great quote on this. He, he, he says this, We are afflicted and blessed with a chronic restlessness, an insatiable soul thirst for this reason, that we might keep looking until we find Christ. And having found Him, we might be turned back to Him again and again when we taste of other springs and find them bitter. We were made for God. The taste buds of our souls were made to relish fellowship with the Son of God. But we are sinners. And the fundamental meaning of sin is thirsting for things other than God. Our sinful nature is a condition of diseased spiritual taste buds. Therefore, the prerequisite for coming to Christ and finding joy in Him is renewal of our spiritual taste buds. What Jesus is offering these Israelites here, what He is offering us this morning is not just satisfaction as we would understand it. Not just filling the, the void or the gap in our lives that we are trying to fill with iPhones and clothes and whatever else it may be. What Jesus is doing, the type of satisfaction that He is giving us is actually a satisfaction of rest. Rest from pursuing a satisfaction that exists nowhere outside of Jesus. He is showing us the thing that we are actually longing for because let's be honest, every person in this room is made in the image of God. You are created to worship and you will worship something. Either God, your creator, or something else. And so we spend lives of worshiping things. And Jesus here in his love is saying, put your affections here. If you need a place to land your worship, it's here. So Jesus is standing up before these Israelites and he is offering them what they did not previously know they needed. This is the type of satisfaction that only comes by Christ's work in us. Believer, unbeliever, realize this satisfaction is only worked within our souls by the power of God Himself. You will not find this satisfaction on your own. I cannot package this satisfaction up here this morning and hand it out to you. This is the work of Christ and the work of the Spirit, and yet we are called to come. We are called to not only admit our thirst, but to come and drink. And so we see, secondly, that Jesus is the object of faith. 
when Jesus asks these people to come and drink, he's asking them to trust. I think belief here is very simple. Oftentimes we, we spend a lot of time thinking, well, what, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does belief actually look like? What are the five steps of belief? I think Jesus here, he's saying belief is simply putting off the temptation to self-capability. Belief here is simply admitting that you are empty. Belief here is confessing that Christ is our only petition before God. To, to come and believe is simply to say, God, I don't understand what's happening right now. I don't understand why we were having this great day, why I am at church this morning, and whatever it is you are doing in my heart, I don't quite understand it, but all I know is I am thirsty. All I know is that I do believe that there is no satisfaction in this life, and that every, every time I have tried to be satisfied, I have come up empty. I am not able to come to you, God, if that is what you are asking me to do. Jesus is saying, listen, you are only called to believe that that is true, that you are not capable, but Christ is He who stands up and pleads that sinners would come and drink of living water. Belief is believing that God looks on you with favor, not because of how good you are, not because of how often you darken these doors, but because of Jesus Christ. Because He is the man who went to Calvary for the forgiveness of sin. He is the man who laid His life down that dead people might themselves live. He is the man who died and rose again, that all of those who believe in him and his work might one day die and raise again. Belief here is, is simply believing that your petition is not yourself, but Jesus. This may seem too simple for you, 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 you may be thinking, this, this is too easy. There's no way that the God of the universe who created all of this in its complexity would have me be saved by something like this, that I just hear Jesus saying, come drink, I drink, and all is well. That's, that's too simple. There's some sort of scheme. How, how much money do you need? The answer is this is simply what Jesus says. There is no ploy. There is, there is no bait and switch. This is not highway robbery. Jesus is not selling a lemon. The difficulty we face here, the difficulty unbelieving sinners face, the difficulty sinners face is that we believe that we are strong and wise. We believe when we take spiritual surveys outside of Christ that God exists and that someday I will stand before Him and just ask Him to come in because I'm good enough and He will be pleased with me. 
He will love the fact that I have spent $450 throughout my life paying it forward at McDonald's. And I was able to buy 500,000 $1 hamburgers. We believe that that's how we receive this satisfaction. Wise and strong men believe that, but the reality is, is that we are all very weak and frail. Look, look with me in Matthew chapter 11. Jesus, Jesus confronts this truth head on. Matthew 11, verses 25 through 30. <clears throat> At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. What Jesus is doing here in John chapter 7, what he's doing here in Matthew chapter 11 is he's saying, listen, the kingdom of God is for those who will leave behind their own satisfaction. The kingdom of God is for those who will admit their weakness and their frailty the kingdom is, of God is for those who will admit they are thirsty. The kingdom of God is for those who will turn from themselves and look to Christ in their weakness and frailty. The tension here is knowing that we are weak and sinful and yet being called to come to the all-powerful, all-righteous God knowing in reality that we really are weak and frail, that we are sinful, and yet being called in the midst. When Jesus stands up in the midst of this festival and says, listen, all you who are thirsty, come and drink, everyone realizes whether they want to admit it or not that they are sinful and that this guy is good, that no one has ever spoken like him. And there's an anxiety that comes with admitting your thirst, admitting your weakness, your sinfulness, your frailty, and coming before a holy, perfect, all-powerful God. C.S. Lewis writes beautifully about this anxiety in a book called The Silver Chair. There's, there's this moment when the, the main character, one of the main characters, Jill, this is in the Chronicles of Narnia, so if you're familiar, it's, it's Jill. And she finds herself in this forest, and she confronts a lion. And there is this lion standing before her, and rightfully so, she finds herself in a state of terror. And so the thing she does is she's like, I'm going to outrun this lion. And she's running and running and running, and before she realizes it, the lion is gone, and there is a new enemy. She is desperately thirsty, thirsty bordering on death. 
And right in the moment when it feels that there is no hope, when all of her ability to be satisfied by the world around her is about to spill over and crush her, she hears the bubbling of a brook. And with joy, she steps out to see the brook. And behold, the lion is standing there. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that, and her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water into her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. What this story reveals is the revelation that every believer has undergone in, men, in meeting Jesus. That this is God. Trusting in Jesus is not merely hoping in a good man. It's believing that the God of the universe, the Lion of Judah is also our sacrificial lamb. Lewis puts it elsewhere, Jesus is not safe, but he is good. It's when the Spirit of God reveals this to us that we desire to come, not with bravado, not in our strength, not in our satisfaction, but with belief and trust that he who has called us to come desires us to come. And when we do come, Jesus promises that we will overflow. The third point is this. Jesus is the giver of spiritual life. The, the scriptures here in, in the ESV, it, it says that from his heart will flow rivers of living water. I, I think the, the, the term in the Greek is not the typical word used for heart. It's not translated normally as heart. I think a version like the, the New American Standard or maybe the King James or New King James, 
some of the older versions of Scripture that translate more literally, I think they have a better, a better way of translating this. Because what Jesus is saying is, all of those who will come to me, all of those who will admit their thirst, their emptiness, and come to me to find satisfaction from out of your inner being will flow rivers of living water. What, what Jesus is saying to them, what he is saying to us, what he is revealing is that the Spirit of God is a living and active spring living within us from which we may continually draw. When you are converted, you are given the Holy Spirit, not in a momentary like, like tidbit, not just enough for that day, but you are given the Spirit in abundance. What he is saying is, listen, you are looking for things to fill you and satisfy you in this life, and you may find those momentarily, but you will have to continue to find them. You will, in fact, continue to dig wells to hold this water you found, and they will run out. What I'm telling you is that the water that I will give you will not only fill you, it will overflow you. It will overwhelm you with satisfaction. All of that in these two little verses. He, he is giving us a really great hope here. He, he, he is essentially saying, listen, the sin that is placed on you by your first father and your first mother, Adam and Eve, that sin that totally encapsulates you, that sin that totally affects you, that sin that not only affects your mind, but also your body, and not only your body and mind, but everyone else's body and mind, and not only their body and mind, but everything around you. That all-encompassing sin, the sin you cannot flee from, the sin that has fully filled you in your fallen state, this water will in fact fill you to a greater degree. And where you were once filled with the depravity of man, you will be filled with the Spirit of God. I will replace what is there by your doing with what is Christ's doing. The satisfaction you will find is that you don't need to look into yourself to have some sort of fulfillment in life. You, you, you need only come to me and, and, and see what Christ has done in you. The work that he himself has done in you that you could not do for, for yourself. I think the significance of, of this really works its way out in, in two different ways. The, the first is this. And this is, <laughs> this is beautiful. This satisfaction is complete and eternal. This type of satisfaction is, is complete in Christ and eternal in Christ. We're not left wondering, okay, well, that, that's good for today. I've come to Christ today, but, but what about tomorrow? Look with me in Revelation chapter 21. Verses 5 and 6. And he who was seated on the throne said, this is um, the revelation of John. This is what was revealed to John as he is looking at the new heavens and the new earth, at what is to come, at the fullness of time. And he who was seated on the throne, that's Jesus, said, behold, I am making all things new. 
Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. What we see here when Jesus is promising these people to be filled from their innermost being is that this lasts forever into eternity. And in fact, even when all things are made new, our plea will still be that we are satisfied in Christ alone. That even when all things are made new, when the earth shall pass away and be made new, when the heavens shall pass away and be made new, when we will be risen in our resurrected bodies to serve and see our Lord Jesus Christ, our plea and our satisfaction will still be Christ Jesus and his work on the cross for us. The beauty is that at the very moment of your confession of thirst and your coming to Him and drinking, that reality is yours now and forevermore. So that's number one. Number two is that the life-giving water of Christ flows out of those who drink it. The life-giving water of Christ flows out of those who drink it. Think of when Springer was reading The Samaritan Woman. She encounters this Jew, this man who is asking her for water, and he ends up saying, he, he, he essentially says, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for water. She's, she's confused. She has no idea what he's talking about. She's like, you don't even have anything to get water with. But as Jesus has this conversation with her, he, he ends up explaining to her, the water I am talking about is not water from this well. It is not Jacob's water. It is the water that he is telling these Israelites about. It's this all-satisfying water of the Spirit. And whenever she finally realizes that she does not have this water, and in fact she does want this water, she goes and tells everyone in her city and a, and a great thing happens. Everyone comes and many, many people come to Christ all because of what this satisfying water does when it flows out of this brand new believing woman's life. So not only are we eternally and fully satisfied, we are equipped for the mission that we are called to do. We are equipped for the reality of needing to go into a thirsty world and crying out, all of those who are thirsty, come and drink. Christ has more to offer than what you are finding. The beauty is that the Spirit flows out of us to accomplish the will of the Father, regardless of how awesome we are. If you were here this morning and you just find yourself stifled in your ability to share the gospel and to lead people to Christ, here is a beautiful truth for you. Christ will do his work through you by the power of the Spirit. You are responsible to go and to cry out, but Christ will work through you, regardless of how awesome you are. Whether you ever have a stage like this where people have to listen to you, or whether you are going out on the streets and crying out, the Spirit of God will work because the Spirit of God is all-powerful. Our confidence as believers is that God's power is certainly at work in us. That when we share Christ's salvation, it goes forth with divine power because God desires unbelievers to believe. Our final point as we wrap up is this. 
Jesus is the one desirous for our salvation. Jesus is the one desirous for our salvation. To me, I think the most, one of the most supreme glories of this passage is this phrase. Jesus stood up and cried out. Jesus stood up and cried out. On this final day of the festival, on the greatest day, Jesus stood up and cried out. It's at the most disadvantageous of times, at the most foolish of times, at the most offensive of times, at the most socially inappropriate of times that Jesus cried out and asked sinners to come and be saved. I want you to contemplate just for a moment this truth. When you were undesirably lost in your sin, maybe that was a year ago, maybe that was 20 years ago, maybe that's right now. When you were undesirably lost in your sin, Christ called out to us. Take just a moment to reflect on that truth. Believer, when you were undesirably lost in sin, Christ called out to you to come and believe. Jesus is the one desirous for our salvation. Unbeliever, do you hear him this morning? Do you hear him? Do you have that anxiety boiling up inside of you? Do you feel the weight of your dissatisfaction? Listen to him. Jesus is crying out. All you who are thirsty, come, believe, drink, and be saved. Believer, have you heard this? Do you claim this reality for your life? Is this your plea before God? Then the question is this. To whom will you in turn cry out to? At the most disadvantageous of times, Christ stood up on the greatest day, filled with the most joy, and called sinners to be saved. Praise God that that is His work, that He is doing that, that His gospel is powerful. It is true, and it is effective regardless of who we are. And in fact, the gospel requires that we be sinful and undesirable, that we be weak and frail, because it's those people who Christ cries out to. Let's pray. 
Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your Son, Christ Jesus, in whom you have saved our souls, whom you have used to purchase us, an undesirable people for yourself. We thank you that in, in, in your grace and your mercy and in your goodness that you don't leave us in a state of dissatisfaction. In fact, in love you cry out to us, revealing our dissatisfaction and offering us so much more that which we, we don't even know we need apart from Christ. I pray this morning that you would use your word powerfully, that you would draw unbelieving sinners to yourself, and that you would, you would draw believing sinners to yourself to a greater degree of holiness and godliness this morning. Father, we trust that your spirit is at work in those of us who have looked on Calvary and who claim Christ as our only plea. Would you use us mightily? Would you use us to expand your kingdom for the sake of the gospel, for the glory and exaltation of Christ Jesus? We thank you for this beautiful picture of who Jesus is, that he's not just a good man, that he's not just a prophet, but he is in fact God with us. The Lion of Judah, the sacrificial lamb for the forgiveness of sin to all those who would hear, who would thirst, and who would turn, believe, and drink of the life-giving water. All the glory. All the glory to you, God. In Christ's name, amen.